take your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's April Fool's Day, April 1st. The world is filled with people who believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest prank ever played upon mankind. It's something that was made up. They believe something that was completely faked. The truth is that the resurrection of Jesus is not just the heart and soul of biblical faith. It's historical reality. The uh, resurrection is not about what will happen in eternity. It's, it's about now. It's about Jesus being alive now. Jesus being Lord and Savior now. Now Hebrews 11.1 1 says this about faith. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is, is confidence in what is real and true. When I was in college preparing to go to seminary, I, I took a class in psychology. Um, and and uh, I, th- I, think, I think Dr. Temple would confirm that one class in psychology is enough to mess you up for the rest of your life. My psychology professor one day defined faith as believing something even though you know it's not true. Now, I'm a 30-year-old in a room full of 18 and 19-year-olds who are utterly intimidated by this guy, and I'm not intimidated by him. And so I immediately and loudly disagreed with him, respectfully, and found that I was surrounded by these three or four girls who became kind of the amen chorus as he and I went back and forth for the next few minutes. He was lying. Faith is not something, faith is not believing something that you know isn't true. Faith is a confidence in what is real and true that you can't see or immediately experience. On Wednesday, I took my mom to Omaha, and she flew to California. She's in California right now at my niece's house. They're probably heading to church right about now. My mom is there. She is not where I can see her. She is not where I can touch her, but she's real, and she exists. That's what faith is. Faith is ultimately confidence in God himself because God is not just true, he is truth. If you think about what Thomas said when Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room, this is a week after the resurrection. All the other disciples, the other apostles had seen the resurrected Jesus. And Thomas said, unless I see him, unless I touch him, I won't believe. And Jesus appeared in the upper room that night he motioned to Thomas and he, he said to him, come here, put your, your fingers in the, the holes in my hands. Put your hand into the wound on my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, without touching him at all, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says this, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And I wasn't on. I think I'm on now. Faith in the gospel means faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ as a historical event, as a historical reality. And that brings us to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, 
which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put into subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. And do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed." For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then what, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory now? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This chapter begins with the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul even defines it for us as he goes on. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel preached by Paul. It's the gospel that was preached by the apostles. It's the gospel that's been preached by Christians ever since. Paul says, I know that you had this preached to you, He says, I know that you received it in verse 1. He knows that it was preached to them because he preached it 
He knows that they received it because he was there. And he saw their response. He not only heard them voice faith, he saw them respond in faith. He saw them act in faith. So the, the question is, has the gospel been preached to you? If, if you've heard me preach more than once or twice, you've heard the gospel. Now, obviously, in many churches, the gospel is not preached. Having heard the gospel, have you received the gospel? Have you believed it? Have you settled it in your heart and soul? Have you taken it as God's good news to you and for you? Are you standing in the gospel now? Is your hope set in the gospel for all time? See, my prayer for you as I, as I pray for you is that you have not believed in vain. That the Lord will continually prompt you and prompt me to faithfulness and to obedience. That he will strengthen us and encourage us and keep us moving forward. It's, a, it's an old story. I don't know if, whether it's true or not. And some of you might even roll your eyes because it's out there so much. But the story is told that there was a man who crossed Niagara Falls walking on a, on a wire, on a high wire. And a whole crowd of people gathered to see him do this. And he walked all the way across and then he turned around and he came all the way back. And when he stepped foot on ground, everybody broke into this thunderous cheer. And then he said, do you believe I can do it again? And they all broke out and cheering and clapping. And he said, okay, who will go with me? And nobody stepped forward. See, it's no good to just hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and nod our heads and cheer if we don't step off of what's safe onto the gospel, which means repentance. Repentance means turning away from something and turning towards something. So in in this case, in this picture, repentance means stepping off of the ground onto the wire and trusting that Jesus Christ holds us more firmly than this world can, even though we can't see him and touch him and hear him, that we believe in him by faith, not believing what we know not to be true, but an utter confidence that what God has declared true is absolutely reliable. And Paul goes on to talk about the personal nature of the gospel. It's not theoretical. It's not locked in theology. It's not simply a, a, a doctrinal point that doesn't have any effect on our lives. He, he says that, that after Jesus was raised in verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. I, I love the fact that, that he refers to Simon's new name. Simon Peter was not uh, circumcised as Simon Peter. He was Simon. Jesus is the one who nicknamed him Peter, or in Aramaic, Cephas. Paul says he appeared to Cephas, not to the old man Simon, but to this new man, Peter. This new man, Cephas. And, and surely, as you read the Gospels, you notice Peter's character and his behavior. And then read the book of Acts, and you see that with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, with the evidence of that resurrection, and with the coming of the Holy Spirit, Peter is utterly transformed. Jesus appeared to the twelve. That's now become a technical term. It's used that way, actually, in the Gospels. So even though Judas is dead at the time that that Jesus is appearing and and nobody has taken Judas's place and they're only 11 by number they are still the 12. He appeared to more than 500 people at one time. 
500 brothers according to the Jewish way of doing math. And so women and children are going to add to that number more than 500 at one time. And Paul says, if you're cynical, if you want to investigate it, most of them are still alive. Some have died, but most of them are still alive. And if, if you want to travel to Palestine, if you want to go dig these guys up in Antioch and Jerusalem and Galilee, you can find them. They're there. They'll share their testimony. Jesus appeared to James. And then he appeared to the apostles again. And then he says in verse 8, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. All of these previous appearances from, uh, from Peter and the 12 and the 500 and James and the apostles, all of that happened in that 40-day span of time between the resurrection and the ascension. But appearing to Paul was somewhere between three and five years later. As Paul is heading off to Damascus to persecute the church, he appears to Paul then. And the wonderful thing here is the same word appear is used. It's the same Jesus. It's the same resurrected Lord. It's the same living Savior. Luke writes in Acts chapter 1, He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and, or during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And then He appeared to Paul. Now, some have said, and some say today, well, of course the apostles wrote that. They were His friends. They were on His side. They were on his team. Of course they would believe this. Of course they would say this. Paul wasn't his friend. Paul was an enemy of Jesus Christ. Paul was an enemy of the church. Romans chapter, or uh, Acts chapter 9 says, Saul of Tarsus, Saul being his Hebrew name, Saul of Tarsus is still breathing threats and murder. He's not a friend of Jesus. At that moment on the Damascus road, when Jesus confronts him, Paul says, I am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You know, know, when he was in the middle of that persecution, he thought he was on God's side. He thought he was doing the will of God. He thought this is what God likes. This is what God prefers. This is what is pleasing to God, that I go after these people and arrest them and torture them and see that they're put to death. It's only after, and isn't this the irony, it's only after salvation that an awareness of sin really strikes home. That an awareness of how lost we were really settles in. The older I get, the older we are in the Lord, I believe, the greater we see the gap between who we were and the grace of God that saved us. We don't grow more confident in ourselves as we mature in Christ. We grow less confident in ourselves. We see that the gap is greater than we can possibly imagine. The resurrection of Christ is a demonstration of his lordship. Paul says in verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. That's because his grace is not an attitude, it's an action. It's the work of God to show favor to those who don't deserve favor. In the first chapter of Romans, Paul says that the Son of God was descended from David according to the flesh. 
and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness by His resurrection from the dead. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, in a couple of places, He calls for a positive response from us, a powerful response for us, from us. As we think about Jesus as the living Savior, as the living Lord. He says in verse uh, 34, Wake up. He's writing this to the Christians in, in Corinth. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. I think what had happened was people in Corinth had said, we like the gospel, we like the way that that sounds, we'll give our loyalty to Jesus, we'll do that. But really they didn't treat him any differently than they treated the Roman gods and the Greek gods that, that filled the city with statues. They thought Jesus was just like that. They'll, they'll come and they'll worship Jesus in that way. They'll acknowledge Jesus in that way. They'll, they'll leave him as, as kind of this mythic figure. But he's not the kind of real person that actually brings about change or calls for change in our lives. And Paul says, you need to wake up. You need to get rid of the drunkenness. You need to do what is right. You need to stop going on sinning. You don't know this God who has called you to life and to lordship by his power and by his grace. And he says, I say this to your shame. Paul goes on to say and to describe the the, the nature of a resurrected body It's a key that he says in verse 42, what is sown is perishable. Verse 43, what is sown is sown in dishonor and it is sown in weakness. He's speaking about our our natural bodies, perishable, dishonorable, weak, earthly. Perishable, We're, we're dying from the day we begin. There comes a point when we can no longer replace what is dying and and we age. And eventually, death comes to us all. But we will be raised imperishable. Not simply eternal, but beyond the touch of, of the rot and decay of natural life. He says we are sown in dishonor. We are sown in our sins and our weakness and our frailty and our unbelief, but we will be raised in glory. We will be raised glorified like Jesus is glorified. Not just raised clean, not just raised innocent, but raised holy. Raised with a, a, an awareness of God that we will never have otherwise. We are sown in weakness. We die in weakness we we for the most part we die because of weakness for the most part as we age we simply lose the ability to hold death off but we will be raised in power we will be raised with a vitality of spiritual life that rules everything about us Governs everything about our existence from that time on. And so, moving to the very last 
verse of the chapter, and there's so much in here, I really encourage you to read it and meditate, study this. In the very last verse of the chapter, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There's four ideas here. Be steadfast, and immovable. Those two ideas are really a parallel. They basically mean the same thing. They, they basically mean to be dug in, to be fixed, to be unshakable. We live in a world that seeks to shake us, that seeks to rock us. The, uh, one, one of the latest trends within so-called evangelicalism is deconversion stories. Rob Bell is known for deconversion uh, there, there are other people who are very well known, Jen, or Jen Hat, Hatmaker or something like that, is known for this deconversion thing. Well, what that means is we're going to get away from the mythology of Scripture and Jesus is something that you feel. It's the ultimate in existentialism. If you don't know what that is, Justin will explain it later. It's the ultimate in if I can't see it and touch it and feel it, it doesn't exist which is the complete opposite of biblical faith. We have that from within the church. Outside of the church, obviously, there are attacks. Uh, I read an article this week on, on CNN about a, a, uh, a so-called biblical scholar who has written things about the Lord Jesus Christ that are pornographic and obscene. unspeakable and they're doing that in an attempt to shake us and to move us and they try and build up enough numbers if enough of them stand and say no it's wrong no this is right what jesus did isn't didn't happen at all he died if he existed at all he died and his bones rotted away in a tomb or they were carried away and eaten by dogs or he just fell to pieces on the cross it's so important that we gather together because we need the encouragement to stand our ground and that's what paul says here be steadfast immovable the the third thing he says is always abounding in the work of the lord it's so easy to get tired. It's so easy to get discouraged. It's so easy to lose energy as, as we move forward. And he says, don't do that. Abound in the work of the Lord. Whatever your work, doing, whatever your work you're doing for the Lord, is, is there a way that you can intensify it? Is there a way that you can increase it? Maybe there's not. Maybe there's not. I don't think that it's a given that everybody can always do more. There's only so many uh, calories of energy in our bodies. There's only so many hours in the day. But as you consider yourself, as you consider your life, as you consider your time in the Word, your time in prayer, your time serving others, is, is there a way that you can, that you can abound in a, in a greater way? I don't know. You know. And we can do that because of the fourth thing that's there. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is not just a casual encouragement, a pat on the back. This is a principle of faith. Your labor in Christ is not in vain. 
I wish as a pastor over the last 25 years, I could see every positive fruit that resulted. None of the negative fruit. I don't want any of the negative fruit. You can keep the negative fruit. The bad fruit, throw away. But the truth is you see very little fruit. Penny spent 20 some odd years serving overseas, reaching out to people, and and relatively speaking, with the hundreds or thousands of students that she had, she saw relatively little fruit. You get her talking about the fruit she saw, and she'll break into tears because of her love and gratitude. This is a point of faith. This isn't a point of, let's hope, let's hope, let's hope. This is a point of faith. Our labor is not in vain when it's in the Lord. He will produce the fruit that he wants to produce. We won't know what the vast majority of that is until eternity. Nobody does. Nobody does. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. See, he is risen now. He is alive now. He is Savior now. He is Lord now. And when we share in communion in a few moments, it's going to be an act of fellowship with this living God, this God of our now, who is eternal, who holds our past, who governs our present, who has our future set in his hands. And we come to him because our past, we barely survived, because our present, we often feel frail and, and unstable, and who can see into this afternoon, much less a year from now? And we come to share this time where he offers himself to us, we offer ourselves to him, so that we can make this most basic declaration there is. Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. He is my life. He is my hope. And I devote my life to Him. And my prayer, my earnest hope, is that you can come in this confidence that He died to take away your sin. And He did take it away. That He rose again for your justification. That you would be clothed with His righteousness. And that you are clothed with His righteousness. Friday night in in Creighton at the Good Friday service, I made the comment, and there are a few eyes that kind of popped open. I said, I'm not done sinning, but Jesus is done dying. He died once for all time and once for all of his people. His death in history 2,000 years ago governs the rest of my existence. And so even though I will sicken myself and disappoint myself with sin... That's a sin he died for. There's not a sin I can commit in my present or my future that he did not anticipate and cover. We come in communion in that reality. And so we can live in the reality of forgiveness now. I don't forgive myself. There are things I don't forgive myself for. I read an article this morning by a pastor. And he said, if you could see my heart, you'd spit in my face. And that's true for all of us. If you could see who I actually am, we would loathe each other. That picture of the covering of the blood in the Old Covenant is the same kind of mercy we need to show each other now. That's why love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't wash those sins away. 
But for the sake of love, we don't peer too closely. For the sake of love, we don't investigate too deeply. We can live in the reality of forgiveness because we are forgiven. We can live in the reality of peace with God now. I don't always feel peace with God. I don't know if you do. Maybe you do. I don't always feel peace with God, but I know this is true. He is at peace with me. Not only has He declared me to be at peace with Him, but He is at peace with me. And when I feel the turmoil, when I feel the uncertainty, I have the promise of Scripture which makes it true and real that He is at peace with me. And so I will trust Him now. And I will obey Him now. Come in that confidence. Father, we thank You for the love that You have poured out upon us as we prepare our hearts for communion. Lord, we're not examining ourselves to see if we're worthy of salvation. The only ones who need salvation are the ones who don't deserve it. Lord, rather we examine our hearts. We examine our hearts to ask whether or not we're being honest with our own sin and honest about our need for you. Asking whether we can say with Paul, I am not worthy to be called an apostle. I am not worthy to be called a a Christian. I am not worthy to be called your child. But I am your child because of your grace and your mercy. I am your child because Jesus died for me and because he rose for me. I am your child because your spirit has given me life and raised me from the dead and will one day raise my body from the dead. Lord, open our eyes to the reality of who you are in a greater sense. and Let us rejoice together today in our salvation through our great Lord.